0: So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 11. I'm actually going to start with the first verse. Just break it apart into bite-sized chunks. There's a lot here. It's really my favorite chapter of the Bible because it tells us how to live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 says, the just shall live by faith. There's four times it's written in the Bible, first in Habakkuk 2, then in Galatians, and then uh, somewhere else, oh, Romans. Yeah, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. And that's what we really want to do. And this is the chapter on faith and how to live by faith and what people have done by faith. It's really an exciting chapter. So Hebrews 11, start with verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel also offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found, because he, God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. First thing to point out that's really interesting is is verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Understanding comes by simply believing God's word. If you just believe that his word says what it says and it's God who said it, that's kind of the first step to understanding something. And and in Proverbs chapter 4, um, I'm using my phone because it's faster to change Bible books and chapters. But it says something interesting in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 4. It says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve her, for preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all your getting, get understanding. With all your getting, get understanding. Understanding God and understanding his word. And I understand. I mean, I know. We're not going to know everything in this life. Of course not. But he will teach us him about Himself. He will teach us His Word. And, and we have to f- cry out for it. It's not something that's just going to fall on us. We have to actually search it out. We really need to, we need to get in to the Word. We need to pray. We need to cry out for understanding. And that's why I prayed that prayer from Ephesians, that God would open the eyes of our understanding. Understanding is, is, uh, is well, let's take, for instance, just algebra. All right? So many people say, I hate algebra. I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I took algebra one. They always put me in those stupid honors classes. I hated them. But I had an algebra teacher, and he was probably near retirement age. And, and uh, he would be like this, writing, writing up things on the board, asking if there are any questions, never turning around to look and see if anybody raised their hand, and then erase the board and you know, he—you never learned anything. I didn't understand a thing. And then years later, I decided I'd go back to school. I, after high school, I traveled around the world. I became a sailor. I was kind of meandering, just checking things out. I got to go quite a few places. It was neat. And then when I was married and in my twenties, I went back to school, and I took algebra one again. And I had a a uh, full professor who taught differential equations higher you know graduate level courses in math and um, he taught algebra 1 at Moore Park College and he taught it in such a way that it was just alive and I understood it and by then I knew the lord and I knew reasons for learning things a lot of things happened you know in the interim between high school and then and uh, and I understood it and I asked him one time what why do you bother with this at night? You obviously make enough money in your, in your profession, you know, with your full being a professor or, you know, in, in a university, and here you come here at night and teach this. He said, I like watching the lights come on. And I thought, well, that's it. That's exactly right. And because of his desire to turn on the lights in our own minds to things, he was an outstanding teacher. He was teaching stuff that he could do in his sleep. And, and he did it just for the sheer joy of watching the lights come on. And I thought, you know, that's why I like teaching the Bible. That's exactly why. I like watching people understand. There's nothing like it when you're standing here teaching and you see somebody go like that, like an aha moment, and they get something. I love that. I really love that. And I like teaching math now, too. You know, we homeschooled our sons, and now we have grandchildren to teach. And it's kind of fun. So understanding. By faith, we understand. Um, We see in Ephesians that we just prayed, that you pray for understanding. Now, Deuteronomy 29.29 says something really interesting. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which he has revealed, he's given to us and to our children so that we can obey his word. So there are things that are not knowable right now. Just not going to know them. Paul, when he was in Second in, uh, Corinthians 12, said he went up to heaven and learned things that he couldn't say. And it says in the King James, in the old King James Bible, in, in the Elizabethan English, that, he, that it was unlawful for him to say it. It really wasn't unlawful. It was more impossible because he saw and understood the agelessness, the, the eternity of God. We can't really comprehend that. We we live moment by moment. You know, we live in a very linear time and we can't really understand it. There are things that God cannot reveal to us just cuz our heads would explode. Right? <laughs> There's just some things and there are other things that we just don't need. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I think it's 1 Peter. I got it written down here in my notes. Yeah. 2 Peter chapter 1. It says that God's given us his word because in it all things all things pertaining to life and godliness are in there. Everything we need to know has been written. And God will teach that to us. He'll teach us what we need to know for this life. Everything we need to know. Imagine how wonderful life would be if we would just hush and listen and read the word and listen for the Holy Spirit to teach us and give us understanding. And by faith we understand. Now, skipping down to verse 6, back to it, back to Hebrews 11. In verse 6, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Believe that he is. That kind of is a prerequisite to believing anything, isn't it? You know, you have to believe that he exists. You know, um, in the first four chapters of the Bible, there are there are three questions inferred, not really asked outright, but inferred. Um, in Genesis 2, from verse three or four on, uh, you've got the the creation account in Genesis 1. Then in Genesis 2 he starts explaining in more detail how he crafted Adam out of the dirt and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Well, Psalm 8, let's go there. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 records something that was was asked. Let's start with verse 3. Now, the old, old sages. Now, remember, Psalm 8 is also a messianic prophecy, but... It's a recording. It's recording something that was asked. And it has been taught and said, and I believe this, that this was after Genesis 2 3. And, and the angels were asking God, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have, that you, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you visit him? So all of a sudden there's this being. This creation that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is man? That's a good question, isn't it? What is man? What, is hum- what are human beings? What is our role in the universe? Kind of an important question, wouldn't you say? And it's, and it's important that we ask that. And it's important that we seek out answers for that. The Bible asks it, then that means the Bible has an answer for it. What are we? Where do we sit in the, in, the, in the universe? Where is our place with God? The second question is kind of inferred in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell and they were, and they were hiding, and God comes along and says, where are you? That's not directly asking this, but it does kind of beg a question, another question, and the question is, what is man's relationship to God? That's a good question too what is man's relationship with god how are we how are we to approach him how what is he to us who are we to him all of that and then then there's another question asked after Cain kills Abel and god comes up and says uh, where's your brother and Cain says i don't know am i my brother's keeper all right that's a good question too what is man's relationship with his fellow man those three questions those are three important questions: what is man? What is man's relationship to God, and what is man's relationship with his fellows? And those questions are all asked in the Bible. Now there's something about the scriptures that you have to understand is that if there's a question in there, it's not rhetorical. God wants us to search it out and find the answers for it. All right there are answers for that. There's one question not asked in the Bible, never. nowhere is it asked. Nowhere is it answered. It's never even inferred. Nothing. You can't find it anywhere. And that's the question, is there really a God? What does it say about that in Psalm 15, 14? Where is it? What does it say about that in Psalm, 8, Psalm 14, 1 and Psalm 53, verse 1? The same thing. They start out the same. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. that's all it says about it. It starts out the whole Bible starts out in the beginning God in the beginning God in the beginning God created he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't even bother answering the question, does he exist? He won't answer that he is he does exist by faith, we have to have faith in God. what did Jesus say when in, in, Matthew, or in uh, Mark 11, when they, said, uh, when they were asking him about faith, he said, have faith in God. For, if I, for I, verily I say to you, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and doubt not in your heart that it would obey you. So have, but he didn't say have faith in what you do, have faith in what you say. He said have faith in God. Faith in God is like the fundamental thing of life. If you don't have faith in God, then, then you're lost. Now, God, if there's one thing you learn from, especially the book of Romans, is that God is just. In fact, let's go to Romans 1. We're going to look at that. The, the three questions, what is man? What is man's relationship with God? And what is man's relationship with his fellow? Now, um, Immanuel Kant born in the 19th century, or 18th century, and and lived and and died in the early 19th century. And he was a moral philosopher. And one of the things that he said, and I love this, and it's a big word, so let's just, I'll define it for you, I promise. But he said there was a unity of apperception. And apperception is a word we don't use anymore. But what it means is that it's it's what we learn based on something we already know, all right? So take, let's go back to, to just arithmetic, all right? So we have a two-year-old grandson and two four-year-old a grandson and a granddaughter. They're both four. They're five weeks apart, all right? So we're homeschoolers. Once a homeschooler, always a homeschooler, right? We, we just kind of naturally teach them as we're playing. So what do you do with a kid is you have colored blocks You teach them to count them and give them the concept of how many there are. There's four. Well, there's, there's here. Let's take nine of them. There's nine blocks. There's three groups of three, different colors. All right? You teach them to count them. Then you show them that there's three sets of those different colors. And then you teach them that you can add those three together, three plus three plus three, and that's nine. So you get to nine faster than going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. But the first thing they have to learn is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine right? Then they can build on that by going 3 plus 3 plus 3. Then they can build on that and go 3 times 3. That's how we learn. Look at Isaiah. I told you to go to Romans 1. We'll jump around a bit. Isaiah 28. I want you to see something. Actually, you know what? Don't bother. I'll, I'll just quote it to you. <laughs> you know, I do have to warn you. I jump around a lot, <laughs> Which is fine, because so do the scriptures sometimes. Some of those messianic prophecies, sometimes they're talking about Solomon, sometimes they're talking about Jesus, and you've got to kind of figure out which one's talking about which. And, but I jump around even more than that. But anyway, Isaiah 28 does say um, that, that God teaches us his word line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. All right? So, just like with three times three and taking it back to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, we have to take our thinking back and back and back and back and back. So, this concept of apperception, back to that again, means that there's a foundation thought, something that we know, and upon, upon that we build everything else. Now we go to Romans chapter one. Here's an interesting, interesting concept. We're going to start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because listen, Listen, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Everybody, every human being knows there is a God. We know it when the spark of life is first put into us. Right? We do. Because the one thing Romans, of all books, and we're not there tonight reading Romans, we're doing Hebrews, but nonetheless, in Romans, we know that when God judges the earth and judges all human beings, that he will be justified. That means that we have to know he exists and that we should have sought him. Then skip down to verse 33. Here's another thing everybody knows, and this is true. Everybody knows this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice practice them. So everybody knows that God exists, and everybody knows that, that he judges the earth, that he's a righteous judge, that we will have to give an account. It's something that is inherent in the human being, and that's why it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God because in order to deny what we know as the very foundation of knowledge we're stripping that away so they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened and we've all lived like that wandering around ignoring god not living living like there isn't a god and when we do we act like such a fool and you see and especially as time goes on you know i was born in 1955 so just within my own lifetime People have become much more foolish I'm honest it's not it's it's interesting, isn't it? How much more foolish? How foolish are some of the things we hear on the news that that some of our politicians say just beyond comprehending how on earth can they be so blind? Well, because they took the very foundation thought that every human being has and said that he doesn't exist. God who created us breathing into our nostrils the breath of life, that came from God. That spark came from Him. Everybody knows God. Look at Acts 17. This is, this is an interesting scripture here in Acts chapter 17. The reason I like it, verse 22, is because this is where Jesus and Socrates meet for the first time. This is where they butt heads. This is where Jesus comes smack up against human philosophy because that's where Paul is at. All right, so he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as if he needed anything. Since he gives to all, what? Life, breath, and all things. So he gives everybody life and breath and all things. That spark of life that's in you tells you there's a God. And only a fool would say there's not. Because how else would you even be alive? When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers. Look at the precision of the universe. Everything around testifies of intelligent design and a God who created us. And we don't even need that as a testimony because it's a spark of knowledge inside of us. And that's the foundation of everything. When you take back everything that we've learned in our entire life, it started in utero when we were conceived and that spark of life was put in us and our brains as they were developing were built on the foundation, there is a God and he is judge. If we ignore that, we become utter fools. So first we have to believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that part, my friends, is really cool because that, that tells you that the life of faith is worth living. It really is. It's worth living. So he's not, just a, he's not just some God that demands our obedience and will smack us upside the head if we step out of line. He wants to bless us. He, he wants everyone to know him. But he created us in such a way that he gave us our free will and we have to choose him he created it he, he he created us to ask for him to be completely dependent upon him when he when we're asking others to come to christ we're asking him dethrone yourself and 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 make jesus your lord but the thing is is we're not doing it with in a vacuum or with no no consequence there is reward there's great reward First and foremost, we can think of right off the top of our head is eternal life. That's a good thing. We're never going to die. Never. Problem is, nobody's ever going to die. So we want uh, everyone to know what we know because they're going to never die. There's a good place to go and a bad place to go, and we know that. And every human being does know that. We know that from from Romans one thirty three. So we have, to, we, we have to have faith in God. We have to understand that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In Hebrews 10.38, it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. We're not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of those who press on. All right, so once you take that first step of faith, believing that God is that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and you receive Jesus and his gift of eternal life through Jesus. That's the first step of a life of faith. The just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11, back to that again. We're going to read through uh, verses 13 through 16. it already talked about um Abraham Moses Sarah or and all of them Abraham and Sarah rather and all of the other uh, the older fathers okay these all it says these all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and truly they, If they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we don't draw back. We keep pressing forward. How many, before you became a Christian, had a life that was actually really worth living? Not really very many of us. There's a lot of people who, in fact, you know, some of us some of us may have been wealthy. I wasn't. Uh, some of us may have been, you know, brilliant and, and great experts in our field. But when you're ignoring God, you're ignoring the foundation of everything that, the, that exists, and you really cannot possibly know happiness. So you take a first step, and then you don't draw back, but you continue on and you don't think about the country from which you came out. You press on looking for that heavenly country. Remember God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We've got to keep pressing on towards that goal. Always, always, always remembering, keeping that in focus because that'll change your behavior throughout your life. I'm a lot better today than I was 30 years ago. A lot. Ask, ask, this little woman on the front row here she'll tell you all about it. <laughs> really am. you improve. But the interesting thing is that it seems like, if you look at what Paul said, it seems like that you get that he, he was expanding his world of understanding of how bad he really was and when he was young. So he was born in about 5 A.D., roughly, somewhere in that neck of the woods. He was about 30 years old when he was knocked off his horse. Spent the next several years learning all about God. And uh, when he was pushing 50 is when he started traveling with Barnabas. Then he started writing epistles in 55 A.D., so now he's 50 years old. He writes 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15 9, he says that he's the least of the apostles. All right, that's a pretty narrow group. And I and if I were hanging around with the ones who walked with Jesus, I would definitely think myself the least of that group. I would have no problem thinking that Peter and John and James and all of them were far advanced from me, especially with Paul, because he came in after the fact. Right? But that's a small group. And if I'm the least of the apostles, well, that's still a pretty good group to be the least of. Then a few years later, he writes Ephesians. This is about 60 AD, so five years later. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, unto me whom the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The least of all saints. So now he's expanded the group that he's least of. But you know what? When you when you stack me up against a lot of other Christians, all of the body of Christ, yeah, I can still say, yeah, I'm, I'm least in that group. Because Jesus said, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. So being the least in the, of the saints, that's not that's still not bad. But then as he gets older. He writes four or five years later, in sixty-four or sixty-five A.D. He writes First Timothy, and what does he say of himself in First Timothy? The worst of all sinners, the sin of this, that I'm the the worst of all the sinners because I persecuted the church. Now he's really understanding. So it seems like that he's getting worse, doesn't it? You're not going to tell me that somebody that that talked face-to-face with Jesus, that his behavior was actually getting worse over that period of time. I'm going to to just surmise and assume that his behavior was getting better, just like my behavior has gotten a lot better. You should have seen my temper when I was young. No, you probably wouldn't want to see it. Had a frightful temper. (laughs) Yeah. It was pretty wild. And and you know I had excuses for it like we all do. But my behavior, I, I'm a lot better. I'm a lot less mature now too, than I was when I was thirty. I had all sorts of responsibilities in my thirties. I was raising children. I was working, and you know I was in the ministry. I was a pastor. I was I was uh, working a full time job and and all of that and homeschooling, helping my wife with that. I had a lot of responsibilities. And, and I took them very seriously. Now I'm retired, not in the ministry. Well, I am. I, I'm helping out here now. <laughs> I'm going to step in and help here now. But um, it's just, you know, I have a lot less responsibilities on me. And uh, I'm a grandpa. And if you see anything, if any of you are Facebook friends with me, you'll see nothing but grandchildren stuff, me playing with them. I don't have to be any more intelligent or creative than a a very imaginative (laughs) four-year-old. I love it. It's the best way to be. My behavior's a lot better. My temper's a lot better. You know what? I didn't cuss once on the way here tonight. Didn't. Not a word. Isn't that something? And it was during peak traffic. You know, we live north in Thousand Oaks, in the hills and and it's a long way to get here. You have to go down either Lynn or God forbid Moore Park Road or the twenty three to the 101, and there's a lot of different routes to get here, but every one of them is jammed, and there's a lot of signals between here and there, not a not a single fit, not one. and yet, the more I know God, the more I realize. Just how bad I am. My behavior, yeah, compared to other human beings and compared to the way I used to be, I'm a lot better. I'm a pretty nice guy now. Almost worth hanging around. It was worth the wait, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't know. She did wait, thank God. Everything I have and everything I am I owe to Jesus and Denise. So grateful. But yet, in comparison to God, the more I know him, the more I realize, oh, my God, how bad we are. I look back. In fact, I I honestly do not forget the bad things I've done. I don't dwell there. I don't sit in the mud there. But I remember the amount of things, the number of things God has forgiven me from. And it makes me so grateful that the gratitude of my heart just overflows with what he's forgiven me for in my life. You know, I, the way I was headed when I was, before I became a Christian, I was headed for a real early death. In fact, I used to say, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. I'm glad I didn't continue on that path. I'd be, I'd be long, long dead by now. God has done so much for because i believe that he is and i believe that he was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and i took that step of faith 40 years ago denise and i met somewhere between my 21st birthday and her 21st birthday 5 weeks later back in 1976 at some point during that time we met by her birthday i knew she was going to i knew that i was in love with her that was that. that was 40 years ago known each other for 40 years. And I've and come April 16th next year will be 40 years that I know the Lord because she brought me to him because I wanted to marry her. And she wouldn't marry me unless I knew Jesus. And then even then she waited around to make sure I really was serious about it. 40 years I've walked by faith and 40 years, you know, I believe me, we've had ups and downs and some of my downs have been down awful, but it's worth it. Keep before you always that there is heaven. The Bible doesn't talk much about it because our brains can't comprehend it. Really very, very little. I found a scripture this morning I was reading within the the Bible program that we use, and I don't remember what scripture it was, but it was something that alluded to eternity again, and it's like, Ah, another scripture underlying that that's important because it doesn't really talk the Bible doesn't really talk about it that much because we really can't comprehend it, but we know it's there. Let's go to the end of Hebrews eleven and let's just see let's just let's just see and let's and let's close with this we're going to get out early tonight tell it's been a while since I've I've taught from the pulpit because I used to be able to go on for hours. (laughs) You can also tell I'm more mature now. I get more words out in, in less time. Let's see, where do I want to read? 32. Oh, no wonder. There we go. I was in 12. That explains it. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David also and, the, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, listen to, what, listen to this list, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel, in the lion's den. Quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being thrown into the furnace and not even smelling like smoke. Amazing. Escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They did it, on the promise that there would be redemption someday. But not one of them had received that promise. They stood in faith, believing in God, and believing that he was going to have a Savior come into this world, and they forsook this world. Some of them were called upon to do mighty acts, to turn to flight an entire army. You know, that was that was recorded in, in, in one of the historical books of the three lepers. They were sitting in the gate of Samaria, and the city was besieged, and people were starving. And so these three are in the gate. They weren't allowed in because they were leprous. And they said, well, you know what? If we stand here, we're going to die. If we go to the invading army, they probably will kill us. They might not. They might feed us. Let's go. And as they were walking... All of a sudden, the, the invading army heard hundreds and thousands of soldiers coming in. It was just three guys walking. But God amplified that sound or had angels in the trees or whatever he did. And they, this is an interesting thing, they left their stuff and fled. There were other cases where they killed each other. Now, that's weird. That's just really weird that, it, that an army would go in such disarray. But again... What is it? What happens to the fool? If he gets his foolish heart darkened. He, his understanding is 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 darkened. He has no understanding. So any time that, that people come up against God, it doesn't turn out good for them. And all all these people did these mighty exploits, withstanding spending the night with a bunch of lions that were hungry, didn't touch him. And then others were tortured. See, this is where understanding God and at least knowing where you are with him and what he's calling you to do specifically really is important because he could call you to stand against an invading army. He could also call you to be a martyr. I'd willingly forsake my life for Christ, not for any other reason. But man, given a choice of death or Jesus, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hesitate. So you need to know what it is God wants you to do in specific circumstances. And if there's anything you can learn from this, that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that this life is really the only thing that matters in this life is what we do with God and what we do with his calling upon our lives. And understanding the entire time that there is a world to come, an eternity to come, in which we will live outside of the realm of the clock. We won't need a watch. You don't need a watch now anymore. Everybody's got their smartphones. They've got their smart watches. My watch is smarter than me. That's why I use a dumb watch. But we will be outside of that. We won't need to worry about time. Can you try to imagine that? Try to imagine it. So this life is a life we live by faith in the God who loves us and rewards us. And you say, there was a song somebody sang that said, that even if there was no eternal life, I'd still serve Jesus for the joy of serving him. That's actually really not the truth. The truth is there's a reward. And you say, well, as long as I get to heaven, it doesn't matter about the rest. Well, yeah, I think you say that now, but I don't know. There's a song I love. It's called, That's All the Lumber You Sent. This guy gets to heaven, and they bring him past all these magnificent mansions down and down and down the block, and he gets he gets to the end of the block, and there's a pile of sticks there, enough to build maybe an outhouse. And he says, what about all those other mansions? Oh, he said, Peter said, no, that's all the lumber you sent. (laughs) That's it. That's all there is. Here, somebody can help you hammer it together. That's it. There's your dwelling. There are eternal consequences to things that we do in this life. If we live by faith, we can make them count. You know, I I like what uh, Pastor Rob says about about people like Samson, Samson here in the Hall of Faith, whose life was a wreck. You know? So what does he have? Eternal life, but a waste of time here. I don't want to do that. I don't want to waste my time here. I want it to count. I want what I do to matter. I have a a decent start on a family, You know, two sons, three grandkids, maybe more to come. I'm still begging more grandkids. (laughs) Can't have too many. But more than that, I want others to know this. I want others to know the life I've lived. God took me, the most unlikely person to ever succeed from a family of a lot of failures. My mom's side of the family is pretty decent. My dad's side of the family, not so. And he, and he's made a life worth living. I can honestly tell you tonight that I live a very good life because I know how to live by faith. What I have or don't have is irrelevant. I love my wife. I love my children. I love My grandchildren. And God has done this because I took that step of faith forty years ago. If if you're here tonight and you haven't done that, do so. Don't leave without Jesus. If you don't know how to have how to how to bring Jesus into your life, just ask me afterwards. I'll be glad to pray with you. It's the first step of a life of faith. It's worth living. Even if you have to give up your life for Jesus in the midst of it, it doesn't matter. This life is worth living. Whether you're called to defeat an entire invading army or called to be martyred for Jesus, who cares? What matters is that we live for him. God loves us. Let's pray.